Chapter Two of Recollections of Abraham Lincoln, 1847 to 1865, by Ward Hill Lamon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by John Greenman. Chapter Two Journey from Springfield to Washington. On the 11th of February, 1861, the arrangements for Mr. Lincoln's departure from Springfield were completed. It was intended to occupy the time remaining between that date and the 4th of March with a grand tour from state to state and city to city. Mr. Wood, recommended by Senator Seward, was the chief manager. He provided special trains to be preceded by pilot engines all the way through. It was a gloomy day, heavy clouds floated overhead, and a cold rain was falling. Long before eight o'clock a great mass of people had collected at the station of the Great Western Railway to witness the event of the day. At precisely five minutes before eight Mr. Lincoln, preceded by Mr. Wood, emerged from a private room in the station and passed slowly to the car, the people falling back respectfully on either side, and as many as possible shaking his hand. Having reached the train he ascended the rear platform and facing the throng which had closed around him, drew himself up to his full height, removed his hat, and stood for several seconds in profound silence. His eye roved sadly over that sea of upturned faces, and he thought he read in them again the sympathy and friendship which he had often tried, and which he never needed more than he did then. There was an unusual quiver on his lip, and a still more unusual tear on his furrowed cheek. His solemn manner, his long silence, were as full of melancholy eloquence as any words he could have uttered. Of what was he thinking? Of the mighty changes which had lifted him from the lowest to the highest estate in the nation? Of the weary road which had brought him to this lofty summit? Of his poverty-stricken boyhood? of his poor mother lying beneath the tangled underbrush in a distant forest. Whatever the particular character of his thoughts, it is evident that they were retrospective and painful. To those who were anxiously waiting to catch words upon which the fate of the nation might hang, it seemed long until he had mastered his feelings sufficiently to speak. At length he began in a husky tone of voice, and slowly and impressively delivered his farewell to his neighbors. Imitating his example, every man in the crowd stood with his head uncovered in the fast-falling rain. "'Friends, no one who has never been placed in a like position can understand my feelings at this hour, nor the oppressive sadness I feel at this parting.' For more than a quarter of a century I have lived among you, and during all that time I have received nothing but kindness at your hands. Here I have lived from my youth, until now I am an old man. Here the most sacred ties of earth were assumed. Here all my children were born and here one of them lies buried. To you, dear friends, I owe all that I have, all that I am. All the strange checkered past seems to crowd now upon my mind. 
Today I leave you. I go to assume a task more difficult than that which devolved upon Washington. Unless the great God who assisted him shall be with me and aid me, I must fail. But if the same omniscient mind and all-mighty arm that directed and protected him shall guide and support me, I shall not fail. I shall succeed. Let us all pray that the God of our fathers may not forsake us now. To him I commend you all. Permit me to ask that, with equal security and faith, you will invoke his wisdom and guidance for me. With these few words I must leave you, for how long I know not. Friends, one and all, I must now bid you an affectionate farewell. Few more impressive utterances were ever made by any one than found expression in this simple speech. This farewell meant more to him than to his hearers. To them it meant good-bye for the present, a commendation of his dearest friends to the watchful care of God until his return. To him it foreboded eternity ere their reunion, his last solemn benediction until the resurrection. He never believed he would return to the hallowed scenes of his adopted state, to his friends and his home. He had felt for many years that he would suffer a violent death, and at different times expressed his apprehensions before and after his election as president. The first night after our departure from Springfield was spent in Indianapolis. Governor Yates, the Honorable O. H. Browning, Jesse K. Dubois, O. M. Hatch, Josiah Allen of Indiana, and others, after taking leave of Mr. Lincoln to return to their respective homes, took me into a room, locked the door, and proceeded in the most solemn and impressive manner to instruct me as to my duties as the special guardian of Mr. Lincoln's person during the rest of his journey to Washington. The lesson was concluded by Uncle Jesse, as Mr. Dubois was commonly called, who said, Now, Lamon, we have regarded you as the Tom Hire of Illinois, with Morrissey attachment. We entrust the sacred life of Mr. Lincoln to your keeping, and if you don't protect it, never return to Illinois, for we will murder you on sight. With this amiable threat, delivered in a jocular tone, but with a feeling of deep, ill-disguised alarm for the safety of the president-elect, in which they all shared, the door was unlocked, and they took their leave. If I had been remiss in my duty toward Mr. Lincoln during that memorable journey, I have no doubt those sturdy men would have made good some part of their threat. The journey from Springfield to Philadelphia was not characterized by any scene unusual or more eventful than what was ordinary on such occasions, notwithstanding that so much has been written about thrilling dangers, all of which were imagined but not encountered. Mr. Lincoln's speeches were the all-absorbing events of the hour. The people everywhere were eager to hear a forecast of his policy, and he was as determined to keep silence on that subject until it was made manifest in his inaugural address. After having been en route a day or two, 
he told me that he had done much hard work in his life but to make speeches day after day with the object of speaking and saying nothing was the hardest work he ever had done i wish said he that this thing were through with and i could find peace and quiet somewhere on arriving at albany new york mr thurlow weed asked me where mr lincoln was going to be domiciled in washington until he was inaugurated i told him messrs trumbull and washburn had provided quarters for him that they had rented a house on thirteenth or fourteenth street northwest for his reception and that mr lincoln had submitted the matter to me asking me to confer with captain john pope one of our party who was an old friend of his and to make just such arrangements as i thought best for his quarters in washington mr weed said it will never do to allow him to go to a private house to be under the influence of state control he is now public property and ought to be where he can be reached by the people until he is inaugurated we then agreed that willard's hotel would be the best place and the following letter was written to mr willard to arrange for the reception of the presidential party albany february nineteenth eighteen sixty one dear willard mr lincoln will be your guest in arranging his apartments please reserve nearest him apartments for two of his friends judge davis and mr lamon truly yours signed thurlow weed mrs lincoln and one son accompanied him this arrangement was reported to mr lincoln who said i fear it will give mortal offense to our friends but i think the arrangement a good one i can readily see that many other well-meant plans will gangly but i am sorry the truth is i suppose i am now public property and a public inn is the place where people can have access to me mr lincoln had prepared his inaugural address with great care and up to the time of his arrival in washington he had not shown it to anyone no one had been consulted as to what he should say on that occasion during the journey the address was made an object of special care and was guarded with more than ordinary vigilance it was carefully stored away in a satchel which for the most of the time received his personal supervision at harrisburg however the precious bag was lost sight of this was a matter which for prudential reasons could not be much talked about and concerning which no great amount of anxiety could be shown mr lincoln had about concluded that his address was lost it at length dawned upon him that on arriving at harrisburg he had entrusted the satchel to his son bob then a boy in his teens he at once hunted up the boy and asked him what he had done with the bag robert confessed that in the excitement of the reception he thought that he had given it to a waiter of the hotel or to someone he couldn't tell whom lincoln was in despair only ten days remained until the inauguration and no address not even a trace of the notes was preserved from which it had been prepared i had never seen mr lincoln so much annoyed so much perplexed and for the time so angry he seldom manifested a spirit of anger toward his children this was the nearest approach to it i had ever witnessed he and i started in search of the satchel we went first to the hotel office where we were informed that if an employee of the hotel had taken charge of it it would be found in the baggage room on going there 
we found a great pile of all kinds of baggage in promiscuous confusion mr lincoln's keen eye soon discovered a satchel which he thought his own taking it in his hand eagerly he tried his key it fitted the lock the bag opened and to our astonishment it contained nothing but a soiled shirt several paper collars a pack of cards and a bottle of whiskey nearly full in spite of his perplexity the ludicrous mistake overcame mr lincoln's gravity and we both laughed heartily much to the amusement of the bystanders shortly afterward we found among the mass the bag containing the precious document i shall never forget mr lincoln's expression and what he said when he first informed me of his supposed loss and enlisted my services in search of it he held his head down for a moment and then whispered lamon i guess i have lost my certificate of moral character written by myself bob has lost my gripsack containing my inaugural address i want you to help me to find it i feel a good deal as the old member of the methodist church did when he lost his wife at the camp meeting and went up to an older elder of the church and asked him if he could tell him whereabouts in hell his wife was in fact i am in a worse fix than my methodist friend for if it were nothing but a wife that was missing mine would be sure to pop up serenely somewhere that address may be a loss to more than one husband in this country but i shall be the greatest sufferer on our dark journey from harrisburg to philadelphia the lamps of the car were not lighted because of the secret journey we were making the loss of the address and the search for it was the subject of a great deal of amusement mr lincoln said many funny things in connection with the incident one of them was that he knew a fellow once who had saved up fifteen hundred dollars and placed it in a private banking establishment the bank soon failed and he afterward received ten per cent of his investment he then took his one hundred and fifty dollars and deposited it in a savings bank where he was sure it would be safe in a short time this bank also failed and he received at the final settlement ten per cent on the amount deposited when the fifteen dollars was paid over to him he held it in his hand and looked at it thoughtfully then he said now darn you i have got you reduced to a portable shape so i'll put you in my pocket suiting the action to the word mr lincoln took his address from the bag and carefully placed it in the inside pocket of his vest but held on to the satchel with as much interest as if it still contained his certificate of moral character while mr lincoln in the midst of his suite of attendants was being borne in triumph through the streets of philadelphia and a countless multitude of people were shouting themselves hoarse and jostling and crushing each other round his carriage mr felton the president of the philadelphia wilmington and baltimore railway was engaged with a private detective discussing the details of an alleged conspiracy to murder him at baltimore at various places along the route mr judd who was supposed to exercise unbounded influence over the new president had received vague hints of the impending danger mr lincoln reached philadelphia on the afternoon of the twenty first the detective had arrived in the morning and improved the interval to impress and enlist mr felton in the evening he got mr judge and mr felton into his room at the st louis hotel 
and told them all he had learned. Mr. Judd was very much startled, and was sure that it would be extremely imprudent for Mr. Lincoln to pass through Baltimore in open daylight, according to the published program. But he thought the detective ought to see the President himself, and as it was wearing toward nine o'clock there was no time to lose. It was agreed that the part taken by the detective and Mr. Felton should be kept secret from everyone but the President. Mr. Sanford, president of the American Telegraph Company, had also been cooperating in the business, and the same stipulation was made with regard to him. Mr. Judd went to his own room at the Continental, and the detective followed. The crowd in the hotel was very dense, and it took some time to get a message to Mr. Lincoln, but it finally reached him, and he responded in person. Mr. Judd introduced the detective, and the latter told his story again. Mr. Judd and the detective wanted Mr. Lincoln to leave for Washington that night. This he flatly refused to do. He had engagements with the people, he said, to raise a flag over Independence Hall in the morning, and to exhibit himself at Harrisburg in the afternoon, and these engagements he would not break in any event. But he would raise the flag, go to Harrisburg, get away quietly in the evening, and permit himself to be carried to Washington in the way they thought best. Even this, however, he conceded with great reluctance. He condescended to cross-examine the detective on some parts of his narrative, but at no time did he seem in the least degree alarmed. He was earnestly requested not to communicate the change of plan to any member of his party except Mr. Judd, nor permit even a suspicion of it to cross the mind of another. In the meantime Mr. Seward had also discovered the conspiracy, and dispatched his son to Philadelphia to warn the President-elect of the terrible snare into whose meshes he was about to run. Mr. Lincoln turned him over to Judd, and Judd told him they already knew about it. He went away with just enough information to enable his father to anticipate the exact moment of Mr. Lincoln's surreptitious arrival in Washington. Early on the morning of the 22nd, Mr. Lincoln raised the flag over Independence Hall and departed for Harrisburg. On the way, Mr. Judd gave him a full and precise detail of the arrangements that had been made the previous night. After the conference with the detective, Mr. Sanford, Colonel Scott, Mr. Felton, and the railroad and telegraph officials had been sent for and came to Mr. Judd's room. They occupied nearly the whole of the night in perfecting the plan. It was finally agreed that about six o'clock the next evening Mr. Lincoln should slip away from the Jones Hotel at Harrisburg in company with a single member of his party. A special car and engine was to be provided for him on the track outside the depot. All other trains on the road were to be sidetracked until this one had passed. Mr. Sanford was to forward skilled telegraph climbers and see that all the wires leading out of Harrisburg were cut at six o'clock and kept down until it was known that Mr. Lincoln had reached Washington in safety. The detective was to meet Mr. Lincoln at the West Philadelphia station with a carriage, and conduct him by a circuitous route to the Philadelphia, Wilmington, and Baltimore station. Berths for four were to be pre-engaged in the sleeping car attached to the regular midnight train for Baltimore. This train Mr. Felton was to cause to be detained until the conductor should receive a package containing important government dispatches, addressed to E. J. Allen. Willard's Hotel, Washington. This package was to be made up of old newspapers, carefully wrapped and sealed, 
and delivered to the detective to be used as soon as Mr. Lincoln was lodged in the car. Mr. Lincoln acquiesced in this plan. Then Mr. Judd, forgetting the secrecy which the spy had so impressively enjoined, told Mr. Lincoln that the step he was about to take was one of such transcendent importance that he thought it should be communicated to the other gentlemen of the party. Therefore, when they arrived at Harrisburg and the public ceremonies and speech-making were over, Mr. Lincoln retired to a private parlor in the Jones house, and Mr. Judd summoned to meet him there Judge Davis, Colonel Sumner, Major Hunter, Captain Pope, and myself. Judd began the conference by stating the alleged fact of the Baltimore conspiracy, how it was detected, and how it was proposed to thwart it by a midnight expedition to Washington by way of Philadelphia. It was a great surprise to all of us. Colonel Sumner was the first to break the silence. "'That proceeding,' said he, "'will be a damn piece of cowardice.' Mr. Judd considered this a pointed hit, but replied, "'That view of the case had already been presented to Mr. Lincoln.' Then there was a general interchange of opinions, which Sumner interrupted by saying, "'I'll get a squad of cavalry, sir, and cut our way to Washington, sir.' "'Probably before that day comes,' said Mr. Judd, "'the inauguration day will have passed. It is important that Mr. Lincoln should be in Washington on that day.' Thus far Judge Davis had expressed no opinion, but had put various questions to test the truthfulness of the story. He now turned to Mr. Lincoln and said, "'You personally heard the detective's story. You have heard this discussion. What is your judgment in the matter?' "'I have thought over this matter considerably since I went over the ground with the detective last night. The appearance of Mr. Frederick Seward with warning from another source confirms my belief in the detective's statement. Unless there are some other reasons besides fear of ridicule, I am disposed to carry out Judd's plan." There was no longer any dissent as to the plan itself, but one question still remained to be disposed of. Who should accompany the President on his perilous ride? Mr. Judd again took the lead declaring that he and Mr. Lincoln had previously determined that but one man ought to go, and that I had been selected as the proper person. To this Sumner violently demurred. "'I have undertaken,' he exclaimed, "'to see Mr. Lincoln to Washington.' Mr. Lincoln was dining when a closed carriage was brought to the side door of the hotel. He was called, hurried to his room, changed his coat and hat, and passed rapidly through the hall and out of the door. As he was stepping into the carriage it became manifest that Sumner was determined to get in also. "'Hurry with him,' whispered Judd to me, and at the same time placing his hand on Sumner's shoulder he said aloud, "'One moment, Colonel.' Sumner turned around, and in that moment the carriage drove rapidly away. "'A madder man,' said Mr. Judd, "'you never saw.' We got on board the car without discovery or mishap. Besides ourselves, there was no one in or about the car except Mr. Lewis, general superintendent of the Pennsylvania Central Railroad, and Mr. Franciscus, superintendent of the division over which we were about to pass. The arrangements for the special train were made, ostensibly, to take these two gentlemen to Philadelphia. 
at ten o'clock we reached west philadelphia and were met by the detective and one mr kenny an under-official of the philadelphia wilmington and baltimore railroad from whose hands the important parcel was to be delivered to the conductor of the ten fifty p m train mr lincoln the detective and myself seated ourselves in a carriage which stood in waiting and mr kenny sat upon the box with the driver it was nearly an hour before the baltimore train was to start and mr kenny found it necessary to consume the time by driving northward in search of some imaginary person as the moment for the departure of the baltimore train drew near the carriage paused in the dark shadows of the depot building it was not considered prudent to approach the entrance we were directed to the sleeping-car mr kenny ran forward and delivered the important package and in three minutes the train was in motion the tickets for the whole party had been procured by george r dunn an express agent who had selected berths in the rear of the car and had insisted that the rear door of the car should be opened on the plea that one of the party was an invalid who would arrive late and did not desire to be carried through the narrow passageway of the crowded car mr lincoln got into his berth immediately the curtains were carefully closed and the rest of the party waited until the conductor came round when the detective handed him the sick man's ticket during the night mr lincoln indulged in a joke or two in an undertone but with that exception the two sections occupied by us were perfectly silent the detective said he had men stationed at various places along the road to let him know if all was right and he rose and went to the platform occasionally to observe their signals returning each time with a favorable report at thirty minutes past three the train reached baltimore one of the spy's assistants came on board and informed him in a whisper that all was right mr lincoln lay still in his berth and in a few moments the car was being slowly drawn through the quiet streets of the city toward what was called the washington depot there again was another pause but no sound more alarming than the noise of shifting cars and engines the passengers tucked away on their narrow shelves dozed on as peacefully as if mr lincoln had never been born until they were awakened by the loud strokes of a huge club against the night watchman's box which stood within the depot and close to the track it was an irishman trying to arouse a sleepy ticket agent comfortably ensconced within for twenty minutes the irishman pounded the box with ever-increasing vigor and at each blow shouted at the top of his voice captain it's four o'clock it's four o'clock the irishman seemed to think that time had ceased to run at four o'clock and making no allowance for the period consumed by his futile exercises repeated to the last his original statement that it was four o'clock the passengers were intensely amused and their jokes and laughter at the irishman's expense were not lost upon the occupants of the two sections in the rear in due time the train sped out of the suburbs of baltimore and the apprehensions of the president and his friends diminished with each welcome revolution of the wheels at six o'clock the dome of the capitol came in sight and a moment later we rolled into that long unsightly building the washington depot we passed out of the car unobserved and pushed along with the living stream of men and women toward the outer door one man alone in the great crowd seemed to watch mr lincoln with special attention standing a little to one side he looked very sharply at him 
and as he passed seized hold of his hand and said in a loud tone of voice abe you can't play that on me we were instantly alarmed and would have struck the stranger had not mr lincoln hastily said don't strike him it is washburn don't you know him mr seward had given to mr washburn a hint of the information received through his son and mr washburn knew its value as well as another the detective admonished washburn to keep quiet for the present and we passed on together taking a hack we drove toward willard's hotel mr lincoln mr washburn and the detective got out in the street and approached the ladies entrance while i drove on to the main entrance and sent the proprietor to meet his distinguished guest at the side door a few minutes later mr seward arrived and was introduced to the company by mr washburn he spoke in very strong terms of the great danger which mr lincoln had so narrowly escaped and most heartily applauded the wisdom of the secret passage it now soon became apparent that mr lincoln wished to be left alone he said he was rather tired and upon this intimation the party separated the detective went to the telegraph office and loaded the wires with dispatches in cipher containing the pleasing intelligence that plums had brought nuts through in safety mr lincoln soon learned to regret the midnight ride to which he had yielded under protest he was convinced that he had committed a grave mistake in listening to the solicitations of a professional spy and of friends too easily alarmed and frequently upbraided me for having aided him to degrade himself at the very moment in all his life when his behavior should have exhibited the utmost dignity and composure neither he nor the country generally then understood the true facts concerning the dangers to his life it is now an acknowledged fact that there never was a moment from the day he crossed the maryland line up to the time of his assassination that he was not in danger of death by violence and that his life was spared until the night of the fourteenth of april eighteen sixty five only through the ceaseless and watchful care of the guards thrown around him end of chapter two journey from springfield to washington read by john greenman